Hello and welcome to another episode of Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narrative I was taught. The music for season three is titled Love Is by Bandy, and the song does reference violence and violent theology against the LGBTQ plus community. Here at the beginning, I wanted to provide a trigger warning for references to abuse and a content warning for references to mental illness and depression that come up in this conversation. I also want to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed Broadening the Narrative. If you're listening and haven't already, you can head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review too. Your engagement helps with visibility, so each rating and review really does matter. You can find Broadening the Narrative on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I love connecting with all of you on social media. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. Sometimes we treat healing as an individual activity, but the healing to which God is calling us and the healing of, you know, towards a greater cosmic whole is a communal healing. It's a it's a thing that we are all taking part in. And some of us have systems in which we were, you know, hurt or broken by particular actions of particular people, and we can work through healing, you know, from that particular situation. But if we don't account for how we are you know, part of a hidden system that continues to oppress and hurt others, our healing just isn't whole because healing isn't just for ourselves and for our relationship with God, it's for the whole world. So if we don't take account for that, it's really difficult to talk about healing as as a holistic practice. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I'm joined by a very special guest. Pastor Emmy Kegler is here, and I'm so excited to be talking with her. Emmy is the author of the book One Coin Found, which we'll be discussing today, and has another book coming out soon that we'll hopefully get to hear a little about. While planning season three, I reached out to Emmy to ask if she would be a guest because I'd read her book with a book club. So I'm so glad we were able to connect, and thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Well, can you share about yourself and your background, sort of anything you think would be beneficial for setting the foundation for our conversation? Sure. Uh, my name is Emmy Kegler. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. I'm the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Northeast Minneapolis in Minnesota. And I'm also a co-leader of our outreach ministry, the Queer Grace Community, which is specifically an LGBTQIA led and directed uh, worshiping and gathering community. I'm also married. My wife, Michelle, is a veterinarian here in the city, and we have two dogs and a cat, um, and we are living in our dream home, which was built in 1906. It's like one of the original farmhouses in our neighborhood. We love it. It also takes a lot of upkeep, but um, we're really, really happy to have found the right place for us. Awesome. Oh, I, yeah, my parents have an older home and the constant upkeep like money pit (laughs) feeling of always having to work on something but yeah well yeah as I mentioned earlier uh, it was because of a book club that I've been part of that I was introduced to your book so yeah for the past couple months I had the joy of participating in the wilderness reading community led by Andrea who's a friend of yours and host of the Her Story Speaks podcast and Tasha who's the host of the When We Speak podcast and so we read your book one coin fan, which I have right here. And I got a signed one of your signed copies. So super special and cherish it a whole lot. But yeah, so when I read it, I rated it with five stars on Goodreads recently. And I wrote a review that I wanted to share to kind of kick us off and talking about it. So uh, I wrote in one coin bound, Emmy Kegler powerfully and vulnerably communicates through biblical exegesis and her own personal narrative, how God's love stretches to the margins. 
Emmy gently took my hand and led me on the path to feeling wrapped in the warm tenderness of a God who loves me. As she shared her journey with loneliness and codependency, two aspects that resonated with me. Emmy's pastoral heart and the words she penned are gifts to the church. I highly recommend One Coin Found. So what prompted you to write One Coin Found and who did you have in mind as you wrote? Hmm. My friend and now editor, Lisa, was working at the publishing house where I published One Coin Found, and she approached me probably about a year in advance of actually getting One Coin Found started on paper and said, we think that you have a book sort of to present to the world, and we want to see what would happen if you wrote a book proposal. So this is kind of backwards from how most people go into the book writing journey. A lot of people, you know, have an idea, get an agent, shop around their, their draft manuscripts to a lot of different publishing houses. And what I did was just a friend approached me and said, let's see what you've got. And I wrote something and she said, no, this isn't it. And I said, okay, well, that was, this was fun. Um, I'm going <laughs> to leave now with my tail tucked between my legs. Cause I did it all wrong. She's like, no, 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 let's just try again. And so she and I sat down and crafted and worked a lot together. She's been a friend for gosh, 11 years now. So she knows a lot of my story and has, um, she was in my class in seminary. So she's walked with me through a lot of my own theological journey, as well as my ministry journey. And so she kind of was able to say, this is what we're looking for. I knew I didn't want to write another, uh, sometimes we would call it apologetic as far as, you know, okay, here's the six or seven clobber verses that are used against gay and lesbian people in the church. Let's go through and examine these and talk about why they're not applicable in the same way that some people might use them and talk about a way forward for LGBTQIA people within Christian community. I knew I didn't want to do that because a, like it's, it's been done really well. I mean, if you think about, you know, Matthew Vines, God and the Gay Christian is a great sort of starter text for that. There's a lot of other really excellent books in that category. And I didn't want to do that. What I wanted to do was show, like, we can have a really, we, we as LGBTQIA people can have a really positive and inspired relationship with scripture rather than, you know, sort of having to take a defensive stance against its use. And so that was what I was angling for. My hope really was to address two particular audiences, one being people who have been marginalized in some way by the church's use of scripture and therefore feel like it's not for them. And I wanted to cast a story that would allow people to see themselves in scripture and and related to the God of scripture again. And then secondly, for my straight and cisgender readers to be able to see like, yes, um, people like me can have a, a positive and inspired relationship with scripture and therefore can actually bring some really important gifts to the church as we are. Oh, I love that backstory and mm-hmm. the connection to have someone in the industry who could approach you and yeah, just how that's not the typical thing. Uh, but I love that. And something that even stuck with me when we did our call with you for the book club, uh, when someone asked something about um, how you answer people who talk about those Bible verses and you laid out some, some different ways of responding to that. And it's just kind of this idea of not having to defend your existence. And I thought about how, you know, I, the different people I've had on the podcast who are within the queer community, like never really talking about the clobber verses with them, because to me, it's like, hopefully if anyone's listening, they, to my podcast, they don't need to hear a defense of that, you know, or, or hear that, but also like, that's just such a burden to put on people to constantly 
for those to be the questions that they're, they're being asked. So, oh, I love your, the way that your story came about and what you decided to include and how you framed it. Um, so yeah, well, while you're writing or even afterwards, like what was difficult about writing one coin found for you? One coin found came out of me very easily because almost all of the stories that I tell in it are stories that I've told over and over again. And a lot of the scripture stories that I reflect on and tangle with in it, I've already reflected on and tangled. So it, it really just felt like an unburdening, like, okay, I've got, like, I've been doing this work. Um, gosh, I've been doing, you know, sort of apologetic work or work around the relationship between sexuality and scripture since I was 19. So at the time that I wrote One Coin Found, I, that would have been like 12 years of, of that work, I, either at the collegiate level or in my master's program at the seminary or just in, in my life. And so that felt very easy. The, probably the most difficult part was just like the f- sitting down and getting it out um, and, and feeling, you know, getting over the imposter syndrome of like, who am I to write this book? Who's ever going to read it? Uh, so I did have some trouble with deadlines early on. And finally, my wife just sat me down and was like, here is a calendar. You will write a chapter every you know, every blank, fill in the blank in this calendar and you like, I will give you space to do this and I will help you do it, but you need to start meeting your, your deadlines or you're going to be just cramming it all in in the final two weeks before the hard due date. And she was absolutely right. So really the hardest thing was getting over my own self-doubt um, mm. and, and getting into a space where I believed that the stories were worth writing down. Yeah. That is really good insight there for like, I, I'm part of a writing community too. And so hearing that being such a common sort of um, hindrance maybe uh, for, yeah, just like sitting down and getting it down and figuring out, yeah, what is keeping me from writing my story and yeah, so I'm really glad <laughs> that your wife helped you <laughs> sit down and, and get that out because it's these are really important stories and really beautiful stories that you've told. Um, well, so on the flip side of that, like what brought you joy while writing? Um, there were days when the writing would just flow really, really well, uh, especially because I think they were stories that I'd carried for a while. And that gave me a lot of joy and hope. Um, really the greatest joy was just the moment that I went, okay, well, it's the due date and I have to turn it in and just be done with it. Mm-hmm. And the process then has been, you know, so interesting because most of the writing that I've done has been very specific to a time and place. It gets published in a magazine or, you know, um, online somewhere, but with a specific time and date, it's a podcast interview. It's a blog post that I can go back and edit a book you lose control over because it gets Mm -hmm. printed. And unless you, um, you know, sell enough copies to merit a second edition, which is pretty rare, um, for a first time theological book, um, and I, I haven't. So really, like, you can't change it. And that was really hard for me as a perfectionist and as somebody with self-doubt to let go. That was, um, so, so the joy of having to learn a new way of relating to my writing was really, really mm. good for me of just saying, like, it, it is what it is and I can't edit it any further was a big growth point for me, but also really helpful to just my own personality and my own growth space. Yes. I resonate with that as a fellow perfectionist. Um, (laughs) yes, I've been, I've actually been working on a memoir about the spiritual abuse I experienced Mm -hmm. and it's just been really interesting to think. Yeah. It's like when I, 
like I'll probably self-publish it. It's like when I, when I hit publish, it's kind of like it's out in the world and I can't change it, but it's like, I'm going to change as a person. What if I don't agree with what I put there? And so I talked with a friend of mine, Danielle Stocker about like putting an asterisk on it and being like, um, subject to change as I do, you know, <laughs> like I don't like, yeah. And so I can imagine, yeah, there is probably the sense of relief that, okay, well it's out there now. Um, but yeah, so in your book, you wrote about suffering on pages 76 and 77. And I think it was our first book club call that we'd had where I brought up these things that really resonated with me because you showed the parallel between how abuse is dismissed by the church and how mental illness is treated in the church. When you said mental illness has been framed in a way that suggests that the struggle is beautiful because it unites us with Jesus. I value the solidarity of my savior in my hours of darkness, but there's nothing inherently redemptive in suffering, especially if that suffering could be avoided with treatment and with justice. So um, I was a part of a church for a decade that I've talked about on the podcast before it's called remedy church. And it's the one that I said, I'm writing about um, my memoir and the culture there was one that seemed to almost glorify suffering. And so one of my closest friends who I met there, Danielle Stocker, who I just referenced, she pointed out how there was almost like this obsession with suffering as if the suffering were an indication of your commitment to Jesus and, um, well, a commitment to the church and then by extension, Jesus. And so Danielle talked about how this results in wearing the suffering as a badge of honor, as if you're turning up your nose at those who aren't strong enough. So they leave the church and they just can't stick it out. So yeah, I just... I thought about that backdrop as I read what you said about suffering. So could you share more about those insights you gave on suffering as you explained it? Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting um, as a queer person and to some extent as a woman who shares then womanhood with other um, people who are assigned female at birth, this, this idea of suffering as inherently redemptive is really fascinating. And this, this, this messaging of take up your cross, which I find I mean, you can critique it from the, the sort of um, the perspective of who is being invited to take up their cross in times of suffering and who is not. So for example, and I talk about this in the book, a lot of women, because women are the disproportionate population that experiences domestic abuse. Um, a lot of them, unfortunately, from their churches or from you know Christian culture, just sort of as it exists online, are told suffering under your husband's abuse or your boyfriend's abuse is, is part of taking it up for Jesus. You know, you, you should suffer silently um, and you should take up your cross. And I'm like, why in the world do we tell women to take up their, you know, why do we tell the victim, take up your cross rather than saying to the abuser, like, okay, your cross to bear is that you cannot be in any relationships until you get this under control. Um, why is it that we tell people who are suffering in minimum wage jobs where they can't provide for themselves or for their children? Well, this is your cross to bear rather than saying to the wealthy, you know, uh, redistribution of your excessive wealth that you cannot, nor can your children or grandchildren spend in their lifetimes is your cross to bear. Mm. Um, why have we, you know, the, the message has been, unfortunately, for people who've experienced um serious marginalization and violence and oppression due to their race or ethnicity. Like this is your cross to bear rather than why, why is it not people in power have a cross to bear? Mm -hmm. uh, so you can critique it from that sense. But for me, what was really enlightening was this moment of realizing Jesus's cross was not a silent cross. Jesus's cross was a public act 
which you know, turned the stomachs of the crowd. You have the um, Roman soldier who's looking on and says, truly, this man was God's son. You have the curtain of the temple torn in two and the sun goes dark and there's an earthquake in Matthew's gospel. Like the tombs are broken open. It's this very dramatic, very public act, which is then directly connected with the resurrection, right? Like every time Jesus predicts his suffering and death, he also predicts resurrection, And this idea of assigning to people who are experiencing abuse or oppression, this is your cross to bear, or people who are experiencing mental illness, this is your cross to bear, Mm. completely neglects what the cross does, which is it's a public act, not a quiet one. It has a promise that Jesus is convinced of, um, and it is inherently redemptive for the people around us. And we can talk about the different ways that the cross can be redemptive, you know, the solidarity of Christ with us in our suffering, but also the promise of conquering through the resurrection. You can talk about um, the way that we've traditionally understood it in the Christian church as like Jesus dies for our sins, but no matter how you slice it, the work of the cross is work that is done for someone else. And work of suffering under abuse without calling for justice, of accepting oppression without calling for societal change, of quietly suffering under symptoms of mental illness because we are told not to burden other people, none of those bear resemblance to redemption. A lot of that's informed out of womanist theology and uh, Black women's work coming out of um, sort of the Emmett Till era and post that. Uh, So James Cohn talks a lot about this in his Cross and the Lynching Tree about like death and the cross as a public act that changes the people around it by witnessing okay we just went to church and i can't <laughs> like i'm crying it's it was powerful yes i love that all so much um try to get a hold of myself here so um yeah actually i I think yesterday's episode, right? Today's Wednesday. So yesterday's episode of the podcast just went out and it was with um, Emily Joy Allison about her mm. book and her book Church Two. And I interviewed her in season two and you know how I sent you like a million questions. So I did the same thing to her and we didn't get to all of them, of course. And so I was like, I'll just have to have you back on. So we had another another conversation and this one dove into the connection between the Church Two movement and domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And it was just really fascinating to see that the way uh, the theology of hierarchy and uh, especially within complementarian theology, but, you know, not, not exclusively, um, but how that lends to relationships that are ripe for abuse. And yeah, and it was just a really hard, but powerful conversation with her and something we didn't get to talk about. Um, that was one of my questions for her, but even the second conversation was the, um, she referenced the human beings versus human givers, you know? And so that, mm. so I thought about that as you're talking about who bears the brunt of having to take up their cross, like who bears the brunt of having to be the givers in society. Um, and it's like women and other marginalized, uh, people. Mm. So yeah, that was, that was really powerful. And I have a lot to, a lot to chew on there, but, um, Okay. So another thing, I really deeply appreciated your vulnerability as you shared about how you felt when you heard author and theologian, Dr. Lauren Winner ask the question, what if our job as preachers is to just love the scriptures in public? And so this stuck out to me because I'm someone who used to just consume the Bible, but now I rarely read it unless I'm looking up a verse. And even then I come to it with a lot of hesitancy. Um, but I noticed that 
the late Rachel Held Evans wrote the foreword for your book and her books, Searching for Sunday and Inspired were beneficial for me and ones that I've recommended to others in similar circumstances. But I believe it was on the Almost Heretical podcast where I heard Rachel talk about how we can go to the Bible and look for weapons to wield against others, or we can go to find balm to bring for the healing of others. So how have you seen God and the Bible use his weapons against others in the church in the U.S.? Yeah, Rachel was really instructive for me too um, in learning that this, this sense of like scripture has been used or can be used as a weapon or as a balm. And it's a, in large part about sort of the context to which you're bringing to it and the context that you're taught you can bring to it. She had a post, gosh, I think it was probably back in 2013, 2014, I don't remember, um, but she had a post on her blog where she talked about the book um, Slavery as a, I think Slavery as a Theological Conflict or, or the Civil War as Theological Divide. I don't remember exactly the name of the book, but essentially it talked about in the run-up to the Civil War, both abolitionists, so people who were anti-slavery wanted to see it abolished, and then pro-slavery advocates used scripture to argue for slavery or against slavery, like the same book, and you could pull different verses from it. And I just remember sitting there going like, oh, wow, okay. I already knew that scripture could be used to abuse, but I hadn't, you know, because of growing up gay, uh, it's really hard to miss that. but, but just to see it sort of writ out large, like it's not the first time in history that the church has done that. And um, so I see it obviously in that way, obviously we see it as you're talking about in systems of, of abuse, whether it's, you know, verbal, emotional, domestic, physical, um, you know, however we want to categorize that, but we see that so often perpetrated against people on the margins or people who have been marginalized for whatever reason, right? So women, people of color, communities of color, um, obviously um, queer people for for me and my family. Um, You know, there's just all of these um, poor people, right? We see this happening in Latin America where the idea of the suffering Christ is used as the like, see, Jesus suffers with you. And so it's okay that you're also suffering under, you know, this really unjust power structure. And eventually people start reading the scripture and going, wait a second, (laughs) this book is actually against abusive power structures. Like God is the liberator of the enslaved people in Egypt. What? Um, and, and this, it's just so, it's so fascinating the way we just, you can pull so many different things from scripture to justify your particular stance. And I think we've especially developed that in the sort of, um, the way that we turn the whole book of the Bible into this sort of series of proverbs of like, you can just pull one verse and that one verse tells you everything you need to know. Mm-hmm. I'm much more interested in like the stories of the Bible that cast sort of a larger narrative rather than like this one singular verse. I find it so interesting when people still will just pull one verse and be like, okay, well, this verse from Jeremiah says this, and this verse from Mark says this. So this is clearly what the truth is. And I'm like, do you know how many verses there are in the Bible? Like you can, you can find a lot in there. Um, I'm not sure that just pulling two is, (laughs) is the way that we're going to really like find perfect truth here. Mm, Yes. Yes. And I think for me, it's the past couple of years, it's really come down to, um, how does love inform what I do? Um, because if I'm going to the Bible to find verses to weaponize, like that's not fueled by love. And we'll talk a little, I think I have, yeah. Question number eight gets into some stuff about love. So I'll, I'll save, I'll save. So I won't go too much further into that, but yeah. So, 
So on the flip side of that, instead of weaponizing the scriptures, we can help others heal. And I actually talked with Austin Hartke, who uh, I think he knows you. I, yeah. He's one okay. of my best friends. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I, Cause I think you referenced an Austin in your book maybe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I wonder if that's the same Austin. And then I talked mm-hmm. to him and I mentioned you and he was like, oh yeah. Okay. So yeah. So he did an episode that's coming out soon about the Bible as balm for gender expansive Christians. So can you talk about your own journey towards learning what it looked like for you to love the scriptures and find balm in the Bible in the very book that's been used to silence, manipulate, exploit, and dominate people? Right. Yeah. I think to some extent it was sort of a reverse, like a reverse card from Uno for me in the, you know, most people are making way in their faith. And so trying to, you know, struggling with the scriptures and kind of doing those two things together. And for me, I was, I I have this absolute conviction that I was called to serve as a pastor. And so then I had to go like, well, what do I do with scripture? Like, I love Jesus. I love the church. I want to serve and help the church, but what do I do with this book that's used against me? And I talk about this a little bit in one coin found what actually ended up happening was a friend was doing this 90 days and like reading the Bible in 90 days thing. And I had just graduated from seminary. I didn't have a job um, yet. So I, there was this kind of like weird period in my life where I had nothing to do. And so I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read 16 chapters of the Bible a day. Like I've like anyone has time for that. Um, you know, I was really in that strange niche where that totally works. And I, just said like, okay, I have to figure out how I'm going to love this, how I'm going to have a a positive relationship with this. And there were a lot of different tactics that I developed in that time. Um, Some of it was coming to the text with the presumption that it had something to give me. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes we, when we come with suspicion, which is totally fair. um, And I still like come to the Bible with trepidation then, then we can find very easily what's going to wound us. I mean, I think it's important to look out for that, but also to try to come with the sense of like, there's gotta be something in here that can tell me a truth about who I am and the way the world is and provide me hope and, and resurrection in myself. And so some of that was, you know, reading the theologies of other marginalized peoples and finding like, okay, they found themselves in scripture. So, so can I, just because this has been corrupted and used to support the powers and principalities of the world um, does not mean that's the way it's supposed to be. And the closer that I got to the stories really cracked that open for me of like, God is a God of liberation. God is a God on the side of the underdog. God is a God on the side of the person who's pushed out. Like, mm-hmm. what does that look like? And, and then that became more and more and more of a draw for me and more and more hope for me. Yes. I love that. Seeing how, yes, this is how it's been used, but it doesn't have to be used that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a necessary uh, way of interacting with the scriptures and being able to find yourself and see yourself in the Bible. Um, yeah. Well, on page 160, you wrote, love has been wielded by Christians who cloak their unkindness as, quote, hate the sin, love the sinner, who claim to speak the truth in love, no matter what damage it does. But when one person says it's love and the other person walks away wounded, we don't call that love or truth or grace. We call it abuse. And so when I read those words, I thought of some recent conversations that I've had with 
a dear friend of mine, Sequina Murray or Bandy as she's known by her stage name. And she's a hip hop artist and poet. And she wrote the theme song for um, season three of the podcast titled love is. And so we'd been having all these conversations about love in preparation for her to write the song. And we talked about how like love is patient and kind. And that's the exact opposite of what we and so many others have been on the receiving end of in this name of quote, Christian love. And so, yeah, like I feel like I'm currently in the thick of what you addressed on the next page when you wrote after what's often years of spiritual abuse, we are not easily mended. Um, so yeah, as I, as I said, I had that, that episode about my experience with spiritual abuse at remedy church and, yeah, speaking about what I went through has been healing, but I'm not easily mended, right? Um, so what has helped you heal from spiritual abuse and having the Bible used against you? Mm-hmm. Some of it was not my own work. Um, I was, I sometimes say like inoculated or vaccinated, I suppose I should say more specifically vaccinated against bad theology by being raised in a really progressive Episcopal congregation. And when I say really progressive Episcopal, like progressive for the nineties, you know, so, so now it would be, you know, and they've grown um, as have many of us since then, but it was progressive in the sense that it had women priests. Um, There was a transgender woman in the women's Bible study. Like it was just um, like gender and sexuality and and gender or, or gender identity was not treated as prohibitive. And so the, I mean, I knew that people thought that, but I thought that all of those people lived like decades in the past or like in some, you know, terrible, terrible place like Alabama. Um, And so the first time that I like met that theology in Minnesota, I was like, what, like my body knew that theology and knew that that's not what we believed. And so I reacted to it. So I had this like, you know, protective, inoculated, vaccinated reaction to like, no, that's not, that's not how you use scripture. So some of it was just being exposed to it as a child and as a teen and being able to be raised up in that. Now I did end up spending time in churches that were um, spiritually abusive as far as my sexuality went. And I can get into that a little bit in the book. Um, I think, you know, I was really hungry for a lot of engagement with scripture, a lot of emotion, a lot of connection. Um, And so I found that in the assemblies of God And I talk about this a little in my next book um, where I like had to realize just because I cried at every worship service and like other people, you know, other people would cry too and feel so emotional. Like actually I was depressed. (laughs) Um, And so I was being sort of like spiritually manipulated into like, yeah, I finally found like my home. And it was like, no, honey, you need to go back on citalopram because you're not getting better. You're just crying every week. And anyway, um, It was a little bit of a a sort of a slide into the other direction. But the other thing that has helped me has just been like time um, and time walking with other people who are um, who've had scripture used against them, but also time walking with people who haven't. Um, but who have come alongside me in allyship, like allies have been huge in the sense that they will advocate for me in their churches. They will, you know, let me know when like, okay, we're having one of the, you know, we're having the start of affirming conversations in our churches. And I started doing that, you know, because of my relationship with you. And so to see other people who don't, you know, technically have skin in this game, be willing to put themselves on the line and get into, you know, bigger fights in their congregations, because they believe that, the way that we talk about the gospel needs to change so that it's no longer exclusionary to people who are marginalized due to their sexual orientation or gender identity. Like when people are willing to do that mm-hmm. at risk to themselves with no, um, 
you know, with no reason to accept out of Christian love for me and for people like me, that is hugely transformative. The image you are projecting instead of the humans you are protecting is deadly. If even one adult becomes accepting, it lessens the presence of suicidal thoughts of these adolescents. You're putting people on the streets and trying to flex about it. This type of evil is deceiving and I'm vexed about it. It shuns believers and I need for you to recognize it. True love is healing and I plead for you to expedite it. Realigning and realizing the silver lining never hypnotized or weaponizing with false idols deeply vital we need revival to break the cycles and unite our minds over what's inside and makes up a bio love is kind prunes of fear keeps me in mind never fails mm. thank you for sharing that i know a lot of people who are feeling the same way and so mm-hmm. uh yeah just to to hear how especially the, the time and getting some distance, hopefully from things, uh, bringing some healing, but yeah, I loved reading about your mom and your relationship with her and her, um, yeah, just her drive for things and creating a space that really nurtured you. And so I love that your upbringing did sort of insulate you in some ways from, from a lot of the damaging things that you would later encounter, um, yeah. Well, I can, I can say this, um, whenever I learned something new about a Bible verse or passage that I was taught wrong all of my life, um, these days I get really angry <laughs> because these are the same people who were telling me that good hermeneutics requires understanding the cultural context in which a passage was written, but then they approach certain texts without questioning their own assumptions and their own biases that they're reading into the text. So you wrote on pages 164 and 165 about the turn the other cheek verse, and it was fascinating. Um, So could you explain what you learned about this concept during your study and why a lack of cultural understanding has led to a misinterpretation and misapplication of this verse that is harming people? Yeah. So the way we often categorize that phrase, which shows up um, in Matthew and Luke, uh, is turn the other cheek. And we understand this is just like when someone hurts you, you're just supposed to take it. Um, If someone asks for your coat, you give them your cloak as well. If someone makes you go one mile, you go two. And um, I was first exposed to this in a book called, oh shoot, what is that book called? I don't remember. I don't, it may, it's, it's by the same authors who did Understanding Difficult Scriptures, but that's not the original title, but that's okay. Um, where I really dove into it was in Walter Wink's Jesus's Third Way of Nonviolent Resistance. And so Walter Wink talks about um, misunderstanding what it means to be hit on the right cheek versus on the left cheek, which is a distinction that's made in Uh, I think it's in Matthew's gospel. I don't remember which one gospel says when someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other. And then one says when someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the left. Um, Mm. But so the specific idea of like being struck on a right cheek versus a left. So um, if you dear listeners can sort of visualize that you are hit, um, that you are hitting another person. So you're facing another person and you have to use your right hand because everyone in this context is right-handed. Your left hand is used for bathroom activities. So you would never use that to, you know, engage with another person. You would never use that to eat your food. Like that's why we find actually verses in the Bible that talk about, you know, the right as good and the left as bad because the left is seen as um, dirtier or lesser because 90% of the population is right-handed. So surely hundred percent of the population must be right-handed. This is just a given assumption in the time of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So if you're using your right hand to hit someone else on their right cheek, um, we also get this in um, To Kill a Mockingbird. It's one of the proofs that shows that the um, 
black man accused of assaulting the woman actually didn't. But anyway, um, if you're going to hit somebody with your right hand on their right cheek, you have to backhand them. It's the only real way you can get in a, like a good hit. You could maybe like if they're ducking and it glances off, whatever, but really the only way to do it is a backhand. If you hit somebody on their other cheek, on their left cheek, um, you'd have to do it with an open fist or with a, or with a fist or with an open palm. And Walter Wink's interpretation is if we understand the context of um, the way that people fought and wrestled and um, had physical fights in the ancient Near East, a backhand um, is something that's done from a superior to an inferior. Mm-hmm. So from, um, unfortunately, from a husband to a wife, because women were seen as inferior, from a parent to a child, from a um, master to an enslaved person or a servant. So they would be backhanded. Uh, an open palm um, or a fist would be between equals. That's wrestling, that's fighting, that's a fight between equals. And so what Walter Wink proposes about this text and what other commenters have also written on is that Jesus is not saying, just keep taking another blow over and over again, but rather refuse to continue the violence, but in your gesture, assert that you and the other person are actually equals. They've used a degrading blow against you. They've used this backhand in order for their right hand to strike you on your right cheek. Mm-hmm. But the correct way to respond is not to continue the violence, not to you know perpetuate eye for an eye, but rather to, in giving them your other cheek to hit, essentially say, I am equal mm-hmm. to you. You can hit me again, but I will make you recognize that before God, we are equals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for unpacking that. And I think that just connects back to what we talked about at more of the top of the conversation about the, you know, carry your cross and who that gets used against. So to, to understand these verses in a better cultural context is just so important. Yeah. Um, Well, to kind of switch gears here, loneliness is something that came up several times in your story. So can you talk about the loneliness that you've experienced? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I talk about it, um, especially in relation to how my depression developed. But I think a lot of the other things that were happening in my experience of loneliness was just this sense of being different from other kids and not really understanding why. Um, I grew up an only child. I grew up um, just sort of, I, I just went through these periods where I didn't have a lot of friends and I really struggled with the social aspect of um, community life as a child. So I didn't make a lot of friends at school. Um, just really had problems with that and felt lonely and felt just distant from other people. Some of that was eased by figuring out that I was gay um, and that that was one of the reasons that I didn't feel like others. But some of it is also, you know, related to just different ways of processing the world, um, recognizing that I'm naturally an introvert and so actually sort of need alone time and need people to understand that I need that um, and, and not sort of um, demonize that in myself of like, something's wrong with me that I need a break. Like, no, that's Mm. actually pretty normal for people who have my personality. Mm. So the loneliness was partly, um, I mean, just, it's difficult in any situation to not feel like you're making friends well, but also the way I reflected on myself and just perpetuated the sort of shame of like, well, you're not making friends. So there must be something wrong with you. Mm. So then it made it harder to reach out and make friends. Um, and I just became a lot more sort of withdrawn. Yeah. 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 Man, that's really vulnerable. And so thank Mm. you for sharing that. Um, 
Yeah. And you also wrote about codependency and I was like, why is she writing about my life? Uh Um, So yeah. Can you talk about codependency and how that showed up in your life? Yeah. So I grew up um, in a family that lived with an alcoholic parent. Um, And so that um, much as my mom, like kind of tried to shield me from that, what that does within a family system is can create this space where you have to um, modify your behavior around the addict's behavior. So you're trying to keep them away from their addiction. You're trying to prevent them from experiencing the consequences of their addiction. Um, and this can take obviously so many different forms based on whether you're like married to the person or they're your child or they're your parent or they're your you know, sibling. Um, there's lots of different ways that codependency and enabling can take place. But essentially what codependency does is you just become so involved with the other person's Mm -hmm. existence and addiction that you lose the ability to distinguish yourself. So you don't have feelings. The other person has feelings and you react to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I sort of magnified that in myself. So again, like there's situations that I was in that maybe started me on a particular path, but then I failed to step off of it. And so I, I created a lot of practices of codependency in myself of like, okay, if I want to be left, if I want to be good enough, if I want to be, you know, okay, if I'm going to be in the church and be an openly gay person, I'm going to need to just be perfect. I'm going to need everybody to love me. I'm going to need to be right in whatever, what I do. I mean, every relationship that I'm in needs to like look on the outside. Absolutely. Perfect. So one of the things that I did was really sour um, all of my early romantic relationships by this pressure of like, I can't talk about any problems in this relationship because if there are problems that indicates that it's not okay to be gay. Mm. And so I became extraordinarily like whatever the other person needs, I will make happen because I cannot have my own needs in this situation because I need this relationship to be perfect because it proves that gay relationships are okay. Mm. Um, now that's very specific to me, but that idea of like, I will take care of the other person's needs and pretend that I have none is a pretty universal experience of codependency. Um, and so this, this feeling of like breaking yourself down in order to fit another person's expectations or needs or trying to anticipate the expectations and needs. One of the things that's really hard in my marriage is that I will try to anticipate what my wife needs. And she always knows what I'm doing it. And she's like, what are you doing? If I need something, I'm going to say it out loud. And I'm like, I know that's why I married you. And I'm really grateful. But also, how do you not see how hard I'm working and how uh, like worthy of love that I am, that I'm trying to anticipate your needs? And she's like, actually, you're irritating the crap out of me by doing that. I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is why I married you. But also, like, just let me use one of my bad coping mechanisms, please. <laughs> um, so yeah, for me, codependency was a lot. I mean, like, there's a lot of different structures and people that I was codependent on, but essentially what I was trying to do is like, I'm going to earn my own worth in my place by making myself fit what other people expect. And the truth is that you can't do that because everyone has different expectations and you will eventually break down. And really, even if you're just trying to fit yourself to one other person's expectations, that's a box that a whole self does not fit in. And I just found I was compromising more and more and more of myself Mm. in order to survive. Yeah. Yes. That it's crushing taking on these expectations of others. And so, 
stifling and harmful to your personhood and to, to you as a whole human, um, which, yeah, even on the call, like the reading of your book that like, culminated in this conversation with you, where we got to ask you all these questions, which was such a sweet time together. So yeah, um, on that call, you said a phrase that stuck out to me. Um, you talked about being invited toward greater cosmic wholeness mm-hmm. and working with all the parts of yourself instead of against them to move toward that greater cosmic wholeness. So um, I asked you about how you work with your loneliness and your codependency specifically um, to help move you toward that. And um, so, yeah, I just wanted to ask you the same question here today. Like, how do you work with loneliness and codependency to move towards that greater cosmic wholeness? Yeah. One of the things, I'm not sure this is what I said when we had the book group chat, but one of the things that my therapist and I worked on most recently in our sessions was this idea of not trying to fight my personality. Hmm. And this is basically just mindfulness, but I've always hated the concept of mindfulness because I'm like, I am a judgmental and I'm a judgmental person and I'm a perfectionist. So this idea of just like, I'm going to create this space where like, I am a mountain and my thoughts are just clouds passing in the breeze and I don't have to react to them. Like, that's just not me. Like, I don't have the capacity to not like react and judge. Like I try and then basically end up judging and reacting on how badly I'm not judging or reacting. Um, so I had to get to this place of like, what, how do I work with my personality? And so one of the things that I do is work with my, like, when am I lonely and when do I need alone time and how do I distinguish between the two? Um, How do I keep enough sort of social engagement in my life that I don't feel lonely, but I also don't feel like crushed by needs and people around me. Um, One of the things that I've had to recognize is although I have a very social job in being a pastor that actually doesn't fill my loneliness bucket um, because in a lot of circumstances, I'm not somebody's friend. I'm not, you know, sharing in an equal relationship. I'm, you know, sort of stepping into a space where I can provide a service Um, and to, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I provide a service and they pay me a salary. Um, and so that's not necessarily a friendship or something that can fill a sense of loneliness. So can I, Mm -hmm. you know, curate enough of a social space? The other thing, I mean, I always joke that I'm married up and my wife is too aware of my codependency and it's very annoying. Um, but one of the things that I'm trying to do is take more time when I'm doing codependent things. So for example, um, I clean, like that's one of my stress releasers is having a clean space, but I'll also do it because my wife is not a clean person. And like, okay, if I clean, if I cook, if I do the laundry, you're never going to get rid of me. Like you won't, you won't leave me because I'm necessary to you. But so sometimes I will pause and be like, why am I cleaning right now? Why am I cooking? Why am I doing the laundry? Like, is this Like, what are, what are my motivations behind this? Or why am I doing something nice for my wife in general? And I've left laundry longer because I'm realizing the only reason that I'm doing this is to make her happy rather than like, because we're out of clothes. And so I try to get to the point of letting myself be irritated with the uncleanliness, like with clutter in our house or whatever, for my sake, rather than like preemptively for her sake and anticipating her feelings. Because to be perfectly honest, like she would probably live in a house with just piles of dirty laundry and just keep buying new shirts from the store to wear. Um, like that's how she managed some of her, like, I hate doing laundry. So I'm just going to go out and buy new socks. And I'm like, I, <laughs> what? Um, and so like, it's an exchange of power, right. For the two of us to be in relationship where like, I can be doing these things and it, it enhances our relationship and her life. But I also have to step into the space of recognizing, like, if I'm doing it because I'm feeling anxious about our, like mm. our relationship, 
A, is that based in reality? It n- never has been. Um, it's always just me being like, soon I'm going to get left. Um, I have to do something to keep this safe. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to wait until it's something that I want to do rather than something that I think I need to do in order to keep my relationship. Because she said to me several times the like the only thing that you need to do to stay in this relationship, to stay in this marriage is be yourself, mm. um, which I'm always just like, I don't know what that means. And it really irritates me. You're saying that, can I please just go make dinner and like, feel like, like you're making me anxious um, by asking me to just like hang out with you. I need to go do something for you. Um, so, so recognizing that sense of like, I, I am worthy of being in relationship with as I am without what I can do mm. for the other person. Love is Yes. Yeah. You, you talked about motivations on the call and that was just Mm -hmm. such a, that really stuck with me to ask myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? I think you had talked about like having a checklist, but then you just keep it to yourself instead of being like, here's the rundown of all that I accomplished. Um, so yeah, that was really, really important. Um, yes, well, we kind of hit on this, but it would be really good if we could uh, talk about this a little more. Um, when you talked about there are few praise and worship songs confessing how we participate in the brokenness of others through Mm -hmm. systems of oppression. Uh, You said there's rarely a single word in prepared liturgies to remind us that just because I didn't cause the particular, um, yeah, I didn't cause a particular action that hurt a particular person. I am not freed from the communal problem. And so when I read that quote about love earlier that you had uh, mentioned and uh, my conversation with Sequina, like, what I've also come to realize is that not only have I been on the receiving end of mistreatment, um, I'm also complicit and I've perpetuated mistreatment. Right. And so I loved reading these sentences that you wrote about systems of oppression and just wanted to ask if you could unpack that and talk about why that's important when we're on a path toward healing. Right. Um, healing is not, sometimes we treat healing as an individual activity, but the healing to which God is calling us and the healing of, you know, towards a greater cosmic whole is a communal healing. It's a, it's a thing that we are all taking part in. And some of us have systems in which we were, you know, hurt or broken by particular actions, particular people, and we can work through healing, you know, from that particular situation. But if we don't account for how we are you know, part of a hidden system that continues to oppress and hurt others, our healing just isn't whole because healing isn't just for ourselves and for our relationship with God. It's for the whole world. So if we don't take account for that, it's really difficult to talk about healing as, as a holistic practice. Now that's kind of hidden from us, right? Because the truth is that you can't ever get away in, in this life and this shadow in this side of the veil from systems of marginalization and oppression. And so I think sometimes the church shies away from talking about that and would rather talk about individual journeys of forgiveness and healing because it's so, I mean, first, because the church is complicit in structures of oppression, right? but second, because it's really hard to keep people inspired when they feel the enormity, like the, 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 the massive size of injustice in the world and what needs to be done and how we, I mean, we, we see this all the time where people get sort of awakened to social justice and then feel stymied by the need of other people. And like, well, how do I make any difference when there's just so much going on? Mm-hmm. And I think the church has 
sort of shied away from that and like, okay, let's just talk about our individual sins and our individual need to forgive, which is very different than an individual trajectory towards healing, but it kind of gets mixed up together. Yeah. And um, when we really, when we talk about that, I mean, that really compels us to make serious changes in our lives. Like you can't, you can't save your neighbor through a yoga practice that happens to make your butt tighter. And I think a lot of us really want to be in the healing stage of like, I did yoga and now I have better abs and also a better relationship with like myself and the, the oneness that is creation. And it's like, that's nice, but also your healing has to be for your neighbor or it's not full healing. Mm. Um, and I think the church just kind of wants us to stay in that early stage of like, it makes me feel good about myself. And like, mm, it's, it's actually gonna, it's gonna make you feel a little uncomfortable too. Mm. Yeah. That's such an important distinction. It's like the individual healing is important, but you're really not going to be fully healed unless it's holistic and communal. And yeah, I was thinking about like, I know I did this, uh, in I think 2017 was when I first sort of, um, I guess, uh, was it like James Baldwin talked about an actual consciousness of what I sort of always knew. Um, but to where I now felt the responsibility. And then like, I've heard, um, like I did this and I've heard other people talk about it, like this ghosting the the process because it becomes too much. And so, yeah, just kind of like disappearing from it. Um, but it's like, if we did it communally, then we'd have, you know, cause the church we were part of, it was like a handful of us. Right. And so then it's, you know, then you just feel like you're trying to fight all this and you're alone, or you're just in this little pocket of people who it's the same people helping the same people doing everything. And so it's like exhausting and it wears you out versus if the entire system, like you're saying for the, especially the white evangelical church in our context to see, to own and to repair the damage, then it would be this communal aspect and this communal healing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, kind of my last big question here, <laughs> uh, had to do with a series of, I am found by a divine love statements that you wrote that just brought me to tears. And then you wrote, I'm coming to believe that I am beloved. And I remember the first time it was January, 2019 after leaving remedy church. And I attended a different church for a little while. And I heard the story of the prodigal son taught in a way that I never had before, um, And it was then that I said, God loves me. And I believed it because for years I've been told God loves me. Right. And I told other people, God loved them, but I'd never told myself God loves you, Nikki, like God loves me. And so that changed everything for me. So what did that do for you to realize that you, Emmy are loved deeply and dearly loved by God? Oh yeah, it did a lot. Um, so a lot of my understanding of God's divine love and then the way I receive that is bound up in being loved by friends and by community and by my wife as well. Um, and so this experience of like, I am lovable and loved, um, is very much bound up in both an experience of like the universal cosmic divine and also the very individual experience. Um, it certainly, helped me a lot with, um, um, any journey that I was on as far as therapy and Al-Anon went, 
but it particularly what it helped me do was just um, assess a sense of my worth and what do I need to do to to achieve that worth and the sense of you know as we've talked about already like as I exist I am worthy Mm -hmm. I am worthy of of love and, you know, the sort of the bundle up in that of like kindness and compassion and gentleness, um, of, of rest and mm-hmm. taking a break saying no, um, that experience. So for me as a perfectionist and a, you know, sort of workaholic, um, who's always saying yes to everything and guilts herself when she doesn't, this idea of like being loved and being worthy without having to do that was very Mm. somewhat specific to me. So, um, if you've done any work, for example, with the Enneagram, um, or if your listeners have, you might know that like each of us kind of receives, um, can receive the experience of God's divine love in very different ways, as far as like what broken part of us it speaks into. And for me, it really spoke to this sense of like, I have to do something to be worthy and therefore I must constantly do things to be worthy of love. And this was a direct just interjection into that of like, no, you are loved as you are, who you are, just as a human being, not as a human doing. Mm. Uh, And that was, that was huge for me. That was just enormous. Can I ask you your, which number you most identify with? I'm a, I'm a one wing two. Oh, a one wing two. Okay. Cause it sounds, it sounds similar to like, I identify most with the three. And mm-hmm. so a lot of overlap there in, in things for the one and the three. So yep. I, yep. I resonate a lot with what you, with what you just shared. Yeah. Well, what would you say to someone listening who feels like God's love isn't stretching to where they are? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Here's the thing. The experience that you're having is real. Like it is possible that for some reason you're not experiencing the love of God. That's not like, I'm not trying to deny like, oh, you're just not paying attention. Like God's love is all around you. Like, no, you might be in a system or a situation or just like a chemical mindset. Like you just might not like your brain legitimately chemically might not be able to receive love. Um, like I don't do as well in receiving divine love nor receiving love from other people when I'm not on, um, a serotonin, um, reuptake inhibitor. Like that is just standard for me. So first of all, like what you're experiencing is real. Um, other people experience it too. You're not alone. Um, and you're not somehow like different or having this unusual, unique experience, although you are very special and beloved. Um, but you're, you're not like like you're not the first person to feel that way. Um, there, what might be happening is that there might be systems in place that are preventing you from experiencing God's love. There, you might be in a system, a church or a culture, whatever it is, um, that is actively marginalizing you for its own protection of power mm. and trying to keep you from experiencing God's love because it would disrupt their system. Um, you know, their, their popularity or their righteousness or whatever it is. Um, so you might be like, you might be actively being disenfranchised from experiencing God's love. The reason that I titled my book, one coin found is because my favorite Bible story is this story that gets sandwiched in between the more popular of the lost stories. It's, um, the shepherd who goes looking for the sheep and the prodigal son who goes out and wastes his money and then comes home to this extravagantly, you know, this, this wastefully extravagant father. And right in the middle of that is this story of what woman who has 10 coins and loses one doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house. Mm. One of the things that I think is so important about that story is that coins do not have agency. 
A coin can only get lost if the person who was meant to be in charge of it does not treat it as valuable and worthy and, and, and that it has inherent worth. So if you are feeling like God's love can't reach you, it may be that the people who were charged with caring for your worth, mm-hmm. your parents, your church leaders, your teachers in school, um, the system that you're in, whatever it is like, oh my gosh, your spouse might not even be treating you as worthy. And that might be why you're not feeling it. Mm. That doesn't change the fact that God is still like, God is like a woman flat on her belly with a room digging under the cabinet, like trying to find you, but there might be systems that are still devaluing you. And so I invite you beloved to look into the situation that you're in and find out like, what is preventing me from experiencing the love of God? And how do I systematically disenfranchise it? Or is there a doctor that I can go to that can prescribe me some medication that might help my brain receive it better? Yes. I love all that. Like starting with saying what you're feeling is valid, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to someone listening, but I love even you pointing out that's something else Sequina and I talked about was that churches and institutions specifically churches, right. Where the theology would say the people here are image bearers of God, but then it's like, you care more about the image you are projecting than you care about the image bearers within your institution that you're supposed to be caring for, but you're, you're not. And then I love, love, love the image and how you laid out in your book too, of God as a woman is the woman in the story and is searching and and sweeping and, and won't, won't give up, um, trying to find. Yes. Well, you mentioned, um, your book that you have a new book coming out. So could you let people know the name of it and where they can pre-order that book? Yeah. The new book is called all who are weary easing the burden on the walk with mental illness. So what stood out, um, in the response to one point found was that a lot of people connected with the way I talked about mental illness and wanted to hear more about that from a much more sort of positive Christian perspective, rather than the typical, like, well, if you're feeling sad, you should just pray harder. Mm. Um, cause it turns yeah. out that doesn't work all the time. And so all who are weary, uh, will be released in early November. You can find pre-order links at allwhoareweary.com or you can find it at, you, know, you can pre-order at your local bookstore or online. Um, and, oh, that's, I think that's probably it. Yeah, so you yeah. can find it at allwhoareweary.com. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes. And Thank you. I can, yes, and I can't wait to read it. Uh, I still need to pre-order. I meant to do it after our call uh, with the book club, but now I'm like, I need to go do that. After we get off this call. Um, Well, yes. Where can people find you on social media and stay up to date on your work, on the book and everything else? Yeah. You can find me on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Emmy Kegler, E-M-M-Y-K-E-G-L-E-R. And you can find out what I'm up to, see photos from um, different ministry work that I'm doing both at my church and then out in the world um, and get updates on the book there as well. Awesome. That will go in the show notes as well. So um, last question to wrap us up. What is your hope for one coin found? Uh, My hope is that people continue to uh, recommend it to those uh, in in those two kind of camps of like people who feel distant from scripture, but want to find a way back into it. And people who think that queer people are distant from scripture and want to find out that we can, we can love it and find inspiration in it too. 
Um, so I really just hope that people who are feeling lost can be found by the book and continue to feel like um, through it, God is finding them. I love that. Well, thank you for coming out to the podcast and opening up about your journey and just helping paint the picture of a path that moves us toward greater cosmic wholeness. And I'm grateful to have connected with you and have this conversation with you and appreciate your time today, Emmy. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nikki. It was so nice to just get to sit down and chat with you. Um, So thank you so much for inviting me on. Wasn't that an incredible conversation with Emmy? Make sure you order a copy of One Coin Found and pre-order a copy of All Who Are Weary and follow Emmy to continue learning about all that she addressed. As a reminder, the music for this season is titled Love Is by Bandy and the full song will close out the episode. The song Love Is does reference violence and violent theology against the LGBTQ plus community. You can stream, purchase, and download Bandy's music at bandy17.bandcamp.com. If you liked what you heard today, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share with a friend. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. I also want to thank Jordan Lukens for his help with editing and Danielle Boland for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for episodes as they become available by visiting broadeningthenarrative.blogspot.com. Come back next week for a conversation you don't want to miss with Anunnaki Ray Marquez about responsibly including the I in LGBTQ+. Grace and peace, friends. This is an old to my religion. It used to be a crown on my pendant. Now I'm ten toes down, reminiscing. You were supposed to be the difference. But then when you got close to me, you flipped it and told me I'm the one who was conflicted. Keep it down, keep it hidden. Your colorful crown strictly forbidden. I'm telling you how because it's written. Pray that gay away. I used to listen and these words were like a prison. All it did was hurt and strip me of my feelings. So I strayed away. You're more concerned with the image you are projecting. Instead of the humans you are protecting. It's deadly. If even one adult becomes accepting, it lessens the presence of suicide thoughts of these adolescents you're putting people on the streets and trying to flex about it this type of evil is deceiving and i'm vexed about it it shuns believers and i need for you to recognize it true love is healing and i plead for you to expedite it realigning and realizing the silver lining never hypnotizing or weaponizing with false idols deeply vital we need revival to break the cycles and unite our minds over what's inside and makes love up a love is love is kind prune to fear keeps me in mind never fails my identity is fearlessly written into me and i am sending him shamefully i pretend to be pleased with an atm of me seats with the anti-inner me claiming this was invented no it's a form of violence only made worse by my silence centering my worth on your sirens my wiring is beautiful non-binary yeah you're beautiful queer trans gay yeah you're beautiful enough with the self-hate and raise a ladder if you can't relate it takes a lot of strength to decimate imputed shame and all the pain we breaking chains and bringing chains living to refrain from giving into oppressive reign beautiful savior teaching us that we shall love our neighbor to love our neighbor we would have to learn to love ourselves but if we shelf immutable pieces of our framework then can we say that we really know how to do it well realigning and realizing the silver lining never hypnotizing or weaponizing with false idols deeply vital we need revival to break the cycles and unite our minds over what's inside and make some Mm-hmm.
Give me hope, give me sunshine From the east to the west side Give me peace, give me rest I wanna go down to the wayside You are found, there's a place Ten toes down, you are Give me hope, give me sunshine From the east to the west side Give me peace, give me rest I wanna go down to the wayside You are found, there's a place Ten toes down, you are not even Love is patient, love is kind Rooms of fear keeps me in mind Never Love is patient, love is kind Rooms of fear keeps me in mind Never